0: You're listening to Marcus our Online Radio Podcast.
1: Yes, uh, welcoming uh, the Umar after the uh, Ishaazan and Alhamdulillah getting into truthful news and uh, yes uh, George Galloway and friends uh, will be uh, giving us a, a very informed evening uh, and we're looking forward to that. The war will not last for long. Uh, Gonzalo Ria, Lira uh, he's talking about the, uh, yeah, the Ukrainians have uh, lost 18,000 men and russia's victory is indisputable and imminent that's what he says and the russian ruble and passports are in circulation and ukrainian forces are undersourced and undertrained. nato insists that uh, this tragedy must continue nato contractors are operating all those systems uh, that uh, yeah you know they want to uh rain on uh, russia but the story is yeah it seems a cold winter awaits uh, Europe. And the West and the U.S. have uh, caused the situation, no doubt about that. And uh, they have uh, the gall to blame who? Russia for the situation. And uh, they cut off, uh, uh, are they cutting off the nose to spite the face? That's a question to ask. And also uh, Gonzalo talks about the tactics of uh, Russia. It is like Muhammad Ali's, uh, rope-a-dope they're in a fight but you know you just pull back and you wait you tire your opponent out and then you hit them with a flurry of yeah of punches that will drop them to the floor so uh yeah things are bad uh, for the ukrainians and uh, for europe in general because will europe freeze and uh, thereafter uh, uh george galloway talks to scott ritter who is a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, and he talks about, yeah, they've got, Russia's got a general, and his nickname is General Armageddon. Panic in the voice of Zelensky, they can hear it, and he's uh, he's begging for more arms uh, to his uh, so-called benefactors, uh, uh, Europe and also U.S., who is fighting the proxy war for the U.S., a Russian victory, yeah, Either defeat to who to NATO and uh, preemptive nuclear strikes against Russia. Well, this is what they be hearing. I don't know if uh, madness or insanity will prevail, but Allahu alam. An insanity of the highest order. There's no doubt about that. Right back into the old mistakes, and you know people should be reading the history books. uh, That was a writer saying, uh, making the same mistakes. Ukraine will be smaller and more fractured. And uh, Polish tree, uh, troops are also helping out uh, and the r- Ukrainians, and Poland wants back, yeah, the western Ukraine which they had many many years ago. And uh, they also been warned by Russia. And thereafter, we move on to Professor Alfred De Zayas. Uh, he's a former UN independent expert, and he talks about the chaos, and he says it's a part of the madness. And alternative media, um, Captain George Galloway, yes, he is really keeping us up to speed. So we will sit back and enjoy this edition of Truthful News.
2: Back to the mother of all talk shows. Very glad that you are safe and well because it's all kicking off near where you are, isn't it?
3: Yeah, the war is turning in a very, very interesting direction. And I think that we've reached a turning point and that it won't continue much longer. Um, because it, it, the, the situation on the ground, insofar as what the Western media is saying, is that, uh, you know, the Zelensky regime's forces are on the doors of Moscow. But that's nonsense. Over the past six weeks, they've launched a series of offensives along the uh, three fronts, uh, Kherson, Zaporozhia, and Kharkov. And uh, these offensives have been incredibly costly. They have lost so many lives. And uh, the only quote-unquote victory that the Zelensky regime claimed and made a lot, out of, a lot of hay out of was the um, offensive in Kharkov, in the Kharkov region. But when you actually look at what happened, the Zelensky regime forces essentially took open cow country. And there's nothing there but they lost an enormous number of soldiers. It's credibly estimated that in the past six weeks, they have lost at least 18,000 men killed and perhaps twice that number, seriously wounded, incapacitated. And now they have assembled in in two focal points. Uh, The focal point number one is the Battle of Bakhmut, which is a town, it's in in the um, Lugansk region. And it's a a key point of intersection of several rail lines and highways. Whoever grabs that city, which is in dispute right now, there's a fierce battle going on. It's been going on for a number of weeks. Well, once the um, Russian forces capture that town, they are going to be able to what's known as flower out because there are several roads that exit from Bakhmut. And so that seems that they're going to, the Russian forces are going to be taking that town in the next week, two weeks, three weeks at most, but they will take it. Uh, The Wagner forces, which are the private military contractors that the Russian use, they're basically shock troops. They are on the outskirts of the city. Um, Rumors say that they are actually in control of the southern half of the city, but there's fierce combat going on right now, so nobody's very clear about it. But it's indisputable that uh, that city will be captured. And the issue is, of course, that there are 30,000 Zelensky regime forces there. And on the other hand, there is a very large um, grouping of uh, Zelensky regime forces that are amassing around the city of Kherson, or just across from the city of Kherson, And they are about to launch, and in fact, as I'm speaking to you now, they are launching, as a matter of fact, a major offensive towards the city of Kherson. Now, the city of Kherson, if you recall, it was captured initially at the beginning of the war by the Russians. It was a very important um, operational objective because they wanted to break the dam that was preventing Crimea from getting water. And so they captured it initially, and they've held on to it this whole time uh, very easily. And it was the first city where they implemented the use of the ruble, it was the first city where they started giving out uh, Russian passports to the citizenry there. And now the Zelensky regime has amassed an estimated army of between 30,000 and 60,000 men, a little bit over the top. It's more credible to say it's probably between the thirty and 40,000 man range. And they are going to launch a major offensive. They are, as I said, launching it as I speak. And this offensive, um, well, the issue is that, see, the f- best frontline troops that the Kiev regime had, they're gone. Uh, that army that they started the war with, of 240,000 men, those combat troops have been destroyed. The men that the Kiev regime is throwing into the mix now, that are going to be attacking from Kherson, are what is known as Territorial Defense Forces. These are second- and and third-tier forces. They are under-equipped, under-trained, and basically it's going to be a human-wave type of of attack, which would be horrifying. It would be incredibly bloody especially because the Kherson area, where they are going to be attacking, has been um, uh, fortified over the last seven, eight months now by the Russians. So they're basically going to be throwing these waves of people against a solid wall. And it's going to be horrifying. And the thing is, a lot of people in uh, the West, especially NATO, they insist, that this um, offensive has to take place. It is very clear that Washington wants this offensive to take place before the midterm elections, which are on, I believe, the 7th of November. And so they are insisting that the Kiev regime throw these men into this battle for the city of Kherson, uh, which is actually quite far away from the actual front lines. And these men are going to be slaughtered. And it's as simple as that. It's a, it's a tragedy, and it's being done for optics and the politics in the United States. And what has to be understood is that, you see, even if uh, these, uh, this, these waves of soldiers manage to advance somehow, and perhaps even take the city of uh, Kherson, the Russians have already shown their absolute willingness to give up territory and evacuate their troops as well as civilians to save, um, save their men and save their equipment. And as they retreat, they inflict punishing losses on the attacking forces. Because, of course, when you are attacking, especially in the t- kind of terrain we're talking about here, which is steppe, it's just flat prairie land, well, when you attack, you expose yourself. And so these men who are going to be attacking towards the direction of Kherson, they're going to be exposed, just as what happened in Kharkov. In, in the town of Izium and the town of Liman, uh, which is in the Kharkov region, the Zelensky regime forces attacked with everything. And the Russians simply pulled out. And they pulled out, they secured the vast majority of their men, the vast majority of their equipment. And as they retreated, they inflicted with their artillery and air power terrifying losses. It is credibly estimated that the... Um, that the uh, Kharkov offensive cost the lives, cost the lives, not casualties, lives of at least six thousand uh, Zelensky regime forces, and the Russians suffered suffered less than hundred. I mean, it was that lopsided. And so, uh, in, in the West, they are talking about, you know, they are going that the Zelensky regime forces are going to break through to Kherson and they're going to go on the road to Crimea. This is nonsensical. They point in the West, in the Western media, the, 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 the prostitute media of the West. They claim that the Russians are evacuated civilians because they believe that they're going to lose Kherson. That's not the reason. The reason they are evacuating civilians is that they know that the Zansky regime forces are going to fire indiscriminately into the city of Kherson, using those famous HIMARS missiles to inflict damage on the civilian population, as they have been doing for the last eight years in the city of Donetsk. And so all of this uh, attack on the city of Kherson, it would it'll probably destroy the city. And so that's why they removed all the civilians, because quite frankly, as an army, it's just easier not to have civilians around so you can go ahead and with your operations. And as I said, if the Russians feel that these advances are, ma- are gaining ground, they will simply pull back because you have to understand the key issue. The Ukrainians have run out of men and they are rapidly running out of weaponry. Why do you think they are going to the West begging for all kinds of weapons, whatever weapons they can get? Because they have simply run out because, of course, those weapons have been destroyed. The original army has been destroyed. The only people who are fighting are territorial defense forces and also a lot of NATO contractors. Because all of these foreign weapon systems that are being operated in in, uh, Ukraine, well, it takes months to train for these weapons. And so it's impossible to get Ukraine uh, soldiers to train on them as a practical matter in terms of time. And so the people operating this equipment have been NATO contractors. Um, Probably they were NATO officers for the British, the French, the Greek, the American army last week. And then they just, you know, quote unquote, resigned and signed the paper. And now they're private military contractors and they're sent to uh, Ukraine to operate these HIMARS systems, the n sevens, and whatnot. And so um, that's what you have fighting there. And these men are going to be decimated. It's, it's, it's going to be a slaughter. And even if they gain ground, which is a doubtful thing, but even if they do, you know, swarming, sort of like zombies in one of those apocalyptic movies, well, they will eventually exhaust themselves. They will run out of men. And then the Russians will simply... Bend back and move forward. In fact, Lyman, which was the town that uh, the Ukrainian armed forces captured uh, two, three weeks ago, the Russians now are staging offensives on that town to recapture it. And they're fresh, whereas the Zelensky regime forces that are currently defending Lyman, they're exhausted. And so this is the war that's being fought. And the people in the West, uh, the vast majority of civilians, not people like you and I who are neck deep in the information warfare, well, the people in the West do not seem to realize that all of their woes are not because of Russia. It's because of the Western leadership classes that bet it all on the Zelensky regime and defeating Russia. And they bet wrong. And they did all these sanctions that have backfired on them horribly. And that's why the people in Britain are going to go cold, dark, and hungry this winter. And uh, I know that you're in, in the UK, and and, and sincerely, I, I hope th- things work out for you personally, George, because you know how much I appreciate you. But I'm telling you, it's going to be an ugly winter for the people of Europe, and they only have their own leadership to blame. Their Your leadership, the European leadership, is going to blame Putin, but it wasn't Putin that didn't want to negotiate. It wasn't Putin that cut off the supply of gas. It was the West, the Americans, who decided not to negotiate, that they were only going to accept total victory and regime change in Russia. It was the West, the EU, the British government of Boris Johnson, and now Liz Truss, and the Biden administration, who all insisted on these draconian sanctions that only hurt the European people. And on top of that, as a final note, sort of like a cherry on the sundae. You have the fact that the Americans blew up the Nord Stream pipeline in a grotesque act of terrorism, and they have the gall to try to blame it on the Russians when we all know everyone knows that the Americans did it likely with the assistance of the United Kingdom and perhaps Poland, and it is going to um, it is going to push the European economy off a cliff in fact it already has i mean The European economy is already collapsing. It's already gone off the cliff. Now we're just waiting for the final splat when it hits the bottom, okay? And we're seeing the deindustrialization of Germany. We are seeing the deindustrialization of the United Kingdom. And all the subsidies, free money that the governments of Europe give its citizens to buy gas, to buy heating oil, to buy gasoline and whatnot, it's not going to matter because at the end of the day, it's not an issue of not having the money. It's that there's no supply, there's no supply of gas. They had cheap energy from Russia for years, decades, in fact, and because of the sanctions, they literally cut off their nose to spite their face and no amount of money is gonna cure the fact that there is simply not enough energy to go around in Europe this winter. So to your listeners, I would, if you're in Europe, I would tell you that you have to stock up and firewood, heating oil, whatever it is that you use, because it's going to be a very ugly winter. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I have to tell you here from the front.
2: Because Gonzalo can just keep talking, he's got so much, so wise is he. He was able to cover for the fact that I was temporarily taken off the air. I'm only joking, I don't know if it was a cyber attack. I've absolutely no idea what it was, but I definitely disappeared from the mother of all talk shows. But Gonzalo, great sport that he is, kept on keeping on and is still there now. Gonzalo, I just wanted to uh, make a couple of comments on the tremendous report from the front that you gave. First of all, it seems unlikely to me uh, that the Russians will allow themselves to be defeated in Kherson. After all, as you say, it was so vital for the dam. It was the first place they gave out the Russian passports. Their reinforcements are arriving, uh, yeah. presumably, from the, uh, the mobilization that they have done. And although yeah. the numbers you uh, gave us earlier are big and of course they're very very serious particularly the casualty numbers. But you know, if they've got thirty thousand soldiers there, well if Russia can't field forty or fifty thousand soldiers to hold on to Kherson, questions would have to be asked about them, so tells me, that that Russia will turn Kherson into a Stalingrad.
3: Warfare, what we're seeing is that, see, there there comes a tipping point moment where, and and so far as an offensive is concerned, there are so many uh, soldiers being thrown at you that sometimes it's just inevitable that you have to pull back. And it's not that you're weaker or that you're quote-unquote losing. It's just a smarter thing. Uh, For various specific operational reasons and tactical reasons, you sometimes want to prevent any small salient of your own men being captured. Uh, cut off from the from the main grouping so it's it's reasonable and rational to pull back and 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 basically it's the the Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope strategy of just uh, you know leaning back on the ropes and letting the other guy tire himself out until he's absolutely exhausted and then you just uh, wake up and knock him out and so the, it, it, this is a rope-a-dope strategy that the Russians are, are carrying out I am I'm, I'm thinking that uh, viewers our age you know, I'm, I'm in my early 50s We all remember Muhammad Ali fighting against George Foreman, and that rope-a-dope strategy where it's basically uh, you're fighting but defending, and you're letting the other guy tire himself out. Yeah, that's what the Russians are doing. Now, the other thing that's going on is that the partial partial mobilization, you have to understand that when they called up 300,000 troops, and I personally believe it was probably higher, because of anecdotal evidence and just just the general movement in society in Russia, it's probably a lot more. I'm guessing it's closer to 500,000. The actual number has never been actually released by the, um, by the authorization that the Russians signed, insofar as this is concerned. That, that part is classified. So anyway, the, the point is, these uh, people who were called up uh, in mobilization, they are not taking those civilians, giving them a week's training and sending them to the front in Ukraine. No, 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 they take those men, they gave them a, a week or two of refresher training, because all these, the, the, the men mobilized, are former soldiers, they were in the army. And they are sending them to other units within Russia, far from the combat, to relieve combat troops there. And those combat troops, who are already in place, already up to snuff, insofar as training and equipment is concerned, those are the ones who are being sent to the Ukrainian front and already it's credibly estimated that about um, between 60 and 80,000 men are in the region of Kherson, Russias from this mobilization so they've already made a massive move already okay and so uh, you, you have to understand that uh, um, in modern warfare you can in, in any kind of industrial warfare really it's perfectly fine to give up territory because as Clausewitz te- teaches us uh, you don't fight terrain, you fight armies. What terrain you capture doesn't matter. What matters is that if you destroy the opposing army. And that's what the Russians have been doing very systematically from the very get-go of this conflict, especially after the breakdown of negotiations in March, in March, early April. You see, the Russians have deliberately been aiming to degrade the fighting force of the Zelensky regime. It is credibly estimated by uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who's been close eye and somebody who would I highly recommend that you follow. He's the only dissident American uh, uh, officer who is saying what is more or less happening here in Ukraine. And he credibly estimates that about 100,000 Ukraine soldiers are dead and uh, likely that same number, if not more, of wounded incapacitated. So the original army is gone. And so, you know, th- this is... I believe, and other people seem to agree with me, that this is basically the Kiev regime's last stand. This is like the um, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, where during the winter and into early Jan- into January of 1945, the uh, uh, the Germans threw everything they had at the Allies on the West, and they exhausted themselves. And after that, they had no more arming left, no more gas in the tank. And it was only three, four months later that the Allies were in Berlin. And it it seems to me that this Battle of Kherson is that final bulge in this war. And frankly, they are throwing away the last of what they've got. And the worst part, the thing that that really drives me crazy, that, that I find is just immoral and despicable. And I'm sorry for using such language, but it's the truth. It's immoral and despicable that they are throwing away the lives of these men just to score a political victory so that it helps Joe Biden and the Democratic establishment get a few more votes in the midterm election. It's all politics. It's not because they think that they can actually win, because they know that they can't. It's over. It's been over for weeks now. And all of these men who are dying for nothing, it's that they are dying for nothing. And that's the tragedy and horror, well, not and the even. men who and have Gonzalo, made these decisions they're not are evil.
2: Even. Gonzalo, they're not even dying for votes for Joe Biden, because all of the signs are that Biden, the Democrats, are going to get the mother of all beatings uh, in the midterm elections in November. There was some hope a few weeks ago amongst Democrats that they could limit the losses. But it now looks, according to the betting, the betting markets, the polling, uh, and the individual statewide polling, all indicate uh, a wipeout of biblical proportions. So these men's lives are being sacrificed for a political purpose, which isn't even working for Biden. How about that then?
3: Well, George, you see, you are a a, a much more idealistic man than I am because me, the cynic, uh, I think of myself as pragmatic, but maybe what I'm about to say is deeply cynical. I think that the Biden administration is going to outright try to steal this election. I think that there's going to be gross uh, electoral violations in this uh, coming election, and they will try to sweep it under the rug as they did in 2018, as they did in 2020, And I, um, I am frankly, I am not confident that it will be a straight election. And I would suspect that there's going to be such shenanigans that will throw the outcome into into serious political turmoil. I cannot believe that I'm saying this. I, I have never seen any kind of lawlessness as we are seeing now with the Biden administration. So I couldn't put it past that. I mean, something that if you told me this five, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it now i do believe it because of the actions of the biden regime and how the biden regime has uh politicized the fbi and other security agencies in the united states to politically persecute dissident voices today or or yesterday was it rather a uh writer um i don't have his name offhand but he was a writer writing about the evacuation of afghanistan and the whole withdrawal of last year he was visited by the fbi uh, he abruptly resigned from his position and he's disappeared. This is the kind of thing that we used to see in, in, in you know totalitarian states. And we're seeing it in the United States. In the United States of America with the Constitution, First Amendment, all that stuff. And we are seeing open and grotesque political persecution of the government against the people. And we are seeing, seeing similar things going on across Europe. We are seeing huge protests across Europe by the people with just grievances. And they are being maligned, they are being repressed. The 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 fact of these protests is being censored. You know, the West is dead. In all of the, the virtues and, well, and, and uh, all of uh, the uh, principles uh, have uh, been thrown away.
2: Even worse Gonzalo, even worse than being repressed, they're being completely ignored as if their demonstrations, their protests didn't even happen. Or well thou should be with us at this hour. But Gonzalo Lira was and what an hour it turned out to be thanks gonzalo for how things look today as compared to how they looked before the kerch bridge terror attack
4: i mean before the 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 terror attack against the kerch bridge we were looking at a slow motion transition on the part of russia a decision had been made to partially mobilize to bring 300,000 reservists onto active duty um, a, a you know decision had been made to, and it's a dramatic decision to incorporate uh, four formerly Ukrainian territories into the Russian Federation. Um, and while this was, I think, you know, groundbreaking in terms of the the geopolitics of it, um, it hadn't fundamentally changed the situation on the ground. The Russian military was still overextended. Uh, the Ukrainians were still uh, enjoying the momentum of their uh, September offensive. Uh, and then the attack on the bridge came. And um, we, we've just seen a dramatic transition. The Russians have basically taken the brakes off. Uh, they've appointed a new commander, uh, ominously nicknamed General Omrigeddin, and um, he has been given, you know, he's the single commander of the entire theater. He makes all the decisions. He can use the weapons. Anything short of nuclear weapons uh, can be used to achieve the objectives. And um, within 24 hours of taking command, um, as you mentioned, the, the skies, if not blackened by uh, by cruise missiles, uh, were definitely there was a uh, a definite presence felt by the Ukrainians as uh, scores of uh critical strategic infrastructure targets were hit, not just one day, but the next day and the next day. I don't know how long this campaign will go, uh, if it truly is the initiation of a strategic air campaign designed to destroy um, the critical infrastructure of Ukraine in preparation for a large-scale Russian ground offensive, uh, mirroring, by the way, the approach taken by the United States in Desert Storm back in 1991 then uh, the Ukrainians are in for a very, very long and difficult uh, period of their history. One, which will see um, the integrity of their nation degraded. It's tragic for the Ukrainian people. Um, It's tragic for Europe. It's tragic for everybody. Uh, But it's something that they brought upon themselves together with NATO, the United States, the European Union. And we see it. We see the impact of this. Um, We see the panic in the in the voice of uh, Zelensky as he calls for preemptive nuclear strikes as he begs for assistance um, pleads for more money more weapons we see NATO assembling an emergency meeting in Brussels where they're talking about sending hundreds of millions of dollars billions of dollars more of air defense systems uh, to you know create from whole cloth an integrated air defense network capable of defending Ukraine from the, the Russian onslaught I think mean, things look good on paper when they're planned in a vacuum. Uh, you know, you can sit there in Brussels and say, "I'm going to put a radar here, put some missiles here, and we'll move it all around and shuffle." It's another thing to try to do that in the midst of an ongoing air campaign where Russia is going to be hunting you down and seeking to destroy you before these systems put in. Um, you know, but all it shows is that NATO, rather than doing the right thing and going to Ukraine and saying, Hey, we might want to look for a diplomatic off-ramp that allows you to preserve as much of your country as possible and as many lives as possible. NATO's doubling down on their bad bet, um, only you know, working to lengthen this tragic conflict, which, in the end, will result in the same outcome: Russia wins, um, but this time, Russia's victory will come with a far greater, you know, blood debt. Uh, tens of thousands of more Ukrainians will die. Thousands of Russians will die. Um, mothers will no longer have their husbands, will no longer have their sons, uh, wives. It, it's just, this it, is tragic for everybody. And, uh, it just, it, it's something that seems to escape everybody in NATO, in Kiev, in Washington, D.C. It, it, it seems as if humanity no longer has any value, that it's all about geopolitics. It's all about trying to, uh, you know, outmaneuver Russia in, in some grand, uh, you know, global scheme, but war isn't about that war is about people killing people, and that's what's going on right now.
2: Uh, Stoltenberg uh, took the mask off, didn't he, yesterday? He said uh, a, a victory for the Russian side in this conflict would be a defeat for NATO, and that cannot be allowed to happen. This was a declaration of NATO's involvement in the war up front and public, wasn't it?
4: One hundred percent. I mean, it's also curious, again, that, um, you know, he chose this this moment to uh, to to take the mask off, as you uh, so eloquently said. Um, I thought, I mean, listening to Jan, um, (laughs) Russia was losing. I thought that the Russians were being defeated. I thought that Russia was on the run. I thought Ukraine had turned the tables, that this was decisive. Um, And suddenly, no, a Russian victory. Is a defeat for NATO and we cannot let it happen. Stoltenberg's scared. Stoltenberg knows what's going on. Stoltenberg understands what happened. And that's why he did the next dumbest thing, which is to announce that NATO will continue a nuclear exercise next week. Uh, It's an annual exercise of NATO's nuclear uh, capability. You know, at a time when the president of Ukraine is calling for a preemptive NATO nuclear strike against Russia why would NATO exercise the very means that would be used to carry out a preemptive nuclear strike against Russia? Uh, the wise thing to do, uh, something that a man of maturity, uh, a, a, you know, a man of intelligence, a man of humanity would do, would be to cancel or postpone these, uh, this, this exercise so as not to unnecessarily uh, elevate tensions uh, at a time when nuclear weapons are being discussed. Uh, but that's not what he did. He, he doubled down on his notion that Russia cannot be allowed to win. Therefore, to help preclude a Russian victory, NATO is going to do what? Test its nuclear arsenal? This is insanity of the highest order.
2: Yes, I mean, they'll be making dramas uh, about uh, that uh, in in years to come, if we are permitted any years to come, because, of course, upon that uh, announcement that you referred to russia immediately began exercises amongst its civilian population distributing leaflets putting out films and uh, organizing the population to prepare for the possibility of weapons of mass destruction uh, coming in and and uh, and uh, being used to attack them they are giving out leaflets for example I saw one earlier today uh, which when translated was a leaflet telling you what to do about the possibility of radiation poisoning Uh, it's like going back uh, I don't know if you recall those days Scott to the 1980s uh, the placement of cruise and Pershing missiles in Europe, the fear uh, amongst the Uh, the Eastern Bloc, uh, the Warsaw Pact countries, that nuclear war was going to be preemptively launched by NATO. Now, it never was going to be, and of course it did not happen, but you still see great movies and dramas today about the tension that that led to. And I could hardly believe my ears when they announced they're going to have a nuclear drill at this moment, where Joe Biden is talking about the possibility of nuclear Armageddon, uh, George, this is this is I mean, first of all, I, I do remember
4: the nineteen eighties. Um, I was in the Marine Corps at the time of the, those deployments, and I was actually one of the inspectors that went into the Soviet Union. I was the first inspector into the Soviet Union. Uh, as part of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was signed between the United States and the Soviet Union to get rid of those weapons, to get rid of the Persians, the cruise missiles, the Soviet SS-20s, etc. Um, and, and so this is why I, I take double umbrage at uh, Stoltenberg's comments. Hey, Stoltenberg, people like me sacrificed a whole bunch to get rid of those weapons to create a, a situation where your Relatives, your people, your citizens wouldn't have to live in fear under a nuclear umbrella that could collapse on them at any moment. We took that away so you could breathe easy, live easy. Now you're bringing it right back. I mean, this is literally lunacy of the highest order. And I'm not just, you know, worried about it, I'm angered. I mean, we spent a lot of time and effort and money. Uh, making the world a safer place to live. And now, thanks to people like Jan Stoltenberg, Donald Trump for getting out of the INF Treaty, Joe Biden and others, uh, we're just going right back to square one. And we're making the same mistake. Able Archer 83 was a NATO nuclear uh, exercise that almost brought NATO and Russia to nuclear conflict because the Russians didn't realize until the last minute that this was just an exercise. They thought it was the real deal. And that's one of the things that led Ronald Reagan to sign the INF Treaty, this realization that we almost went to nuclear war over a mistake. Well, my goodness, read the history books, Stoltenberg. You're making the same mistakes. And you can't always count on dodging the bullet.
2: So, uh, Scott, the, uh, when you uh, look back on it, you might say, you didn't have to be Einstein to foresee it. Uh, the attack uh, by a terror uh, bomb uh, on the Kerch Bridge was a big mistake by Ukraine.
4: One hundred percent, and um, you know, but so was the uh, the assassination of Daria Dugina. Um, you know, so were so many other things that are that have been done here. The the Ukrainians ha- are in danger of not just having the Russians recognize the reality of this regime, but the world to wake up to the fact that if you carry out an act of terrorism, which of course the attack on the Briz was, then those who perpetrate it are terrorists. And if a state sponsors this, they become state sponsors of terrorism. The Ukrainian government has literally defined itself as a state sponsor of terrorism, and its intelligence services are now a terrorist organization. Um, this is an uncomfortable reality for the people that support them. But it's it's one thing to have Russia call them out. Another thing to have done something that actually put Russia in a direction that they did not want to go. You know, Russia could have taken the gloves off at any time over the past eight months. Any time. They didn't. Russia has not been seeking this escalation. Russia has been seeking a diplomatic solution to this crisis but now because of this attack diplomacy is off the table the gloves are off and the ukrainians are going to pay you know as they said in games of throne the, the the iron price um it's it i don't think this ends well for ukraine in fact i don't think this ends with ukraine uh, being anywhere near the, the the nation state we currently see i think it's going to be uh smaller Uh, more fractured, and it certainly won't be governed by, you know, the Nazi-embracing regime of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky.
2: What did you make of the Belarusian uh, front, uh, the military movements that took place there over the last uh, 48 hours? The Belarus border is exceedingly close to Kiev. Uh, You can motor there very quickly. I have myself done so in uh, years gone by. Uh, it is uh, uh, it, it is a potentially lethal threat uh, to the Ukrainians if Belarus enters the war, isn't it? It is, but uh,
4: Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, has made it clear that he doesn't have any intention to enter the war in terms of uh, fulfilling Russia's Uh, objectives under the special military operation. He has been consistent in saying that Belarus has one task and one task only, and that is to stop NATO from stabbing Russia in the back while Russia carries out the Ukraine operation. Uh, But Lukashenko has also said that they will not allow Poland to move into western Ukraine, that they will not allow Poland to take control of that territory. And what's been happening over the course of the summer is that Poland has been— Um, In the United States, we call it sheep-dipping, but basically changing the nature of Polish troops, transforming them into Ukrainian troops, and sending them to Ukraine to fight the Russians. We know this. Why? Because there are hundreds of Polish corpses littering the battlefields. Uh, The Russians know exactly what's going on. Um, Poland is seeking to double down on this, and they're preparing more troops to be sheep-dipped. And the Belarusians are becoming very concerned that... Poland may be making a play for Western Ukraine, taking advantage of uh, the upcoming defeat of of Ukraine. And Lukashenko said, "I will not tolerate Poland extending its borders, uh, you know, down my country. In effect, surrounding, trying to surround me." And so, I believe the Poles are preparing to intervene uh, to block any effort of the Poles to make a move on um, on Western Ukraine. And this would be a decisive. Uh, Entry into the uh, into the conflict, but it, it goes beyond this because Poland won't do this uh, without certain assurances from Russia, and uh, among those assurances is that Russia will extend its nuclear umbrella over Belarus, so that if the Baltic states or Poland were to engage in some sort of uh, military adventurism in response to a Belarusian move into Western Ukraine, um, that you know Russia that Russia's nuclear arsenal. come into play so this is a very very dangerous situation and again it could be avoided if poland just kept its nose out of what's going on in ukraine but poland has been making noises for some time now that it has uh that it intends to incorporate western ukraine back into poland keeping in mind that in 1939 it was taken away 1945 uh stalin once again took it away and gave it others, and the Poles feel that historically this territory belongs to them.
2: I'm glad you made that uh, point, though we don't have too much time to dilate upon it. But uh, we're being asked potentially to die in a nuclear winter uh, over whether unpronounceable place names are to be in Ukraine or in Russia, when they've actually been in a multiple number of countries already in the course of the last hundred years. Maybe uh, that's a discussion for another time. Finally, Scott, uh, and I'm grateful for your time always, uh, President Macron said today, again, I could scarcely believe my eyes, uh, that uh, President Putin has to get back to the table to negotiate. Uh, A table at which... Number one, the Ukrainians have said explicitly they will never sit at, and moreover, a table that was burned by the EU, including Macron and NATO in general, uh, eight months ago. Uh, They are the ones that say uh, that uh, no negotiated settlement is possible, that only the defeat of Russia can bring about the end of this war. Uh, Is this a sign that Macron is weakening, or is he just talking out of his backside?
4: Well, it's it's both, actually. Um, I I mean, there's no consistency in uh, Macron or anybody in the European community right now when they speak about Russia, so almost everything they say comes out of their proverbial backsides. But uh, it's, it's also a... A recognition on the part of France and a growing recognition on the part of almost everybody in in Europe that Ukraine has lost this conflict. The uh, to, to to coin a, or to bring a historical analogy uh, from the American Civil War, um, the September offensive in Kharkov was their high watermark, mark, uh, similar to that of the Confederate Army on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg when Pickett's Charge was undertaken. Um, you know they'll never be as good as they were at that point in time. They burned their reserves. They have nothing left. Uh, Russia's mobilizing faster than Ukraine can rebuild. Uh, Russia has a strategic air campaign that's degrading Ukraine's infrastructure. And it's going to be a long, grueling, tragic decline to unconditional defeat. And Macron recognizes this. So he is now starting to panic and, and say, Russia must come to the table. Well, why would you invite Russia to the table again if Russia is losing? I thought Russia lost. I thought the Russian army was defeated. I thought, I thought, I thought. No, it turns out that Russia's winning. Macron is panicked. Zelensky's panicked. NATO's panicked. Europe's panicked. Biden's panicked. There's nothing they can do to stop this outcome. Um, And and so they're hoping that, what, Putin's going to uh, win the war for them by surrendering on the moment of his greatest victory? I think not
2: scott as always a pleasure to talk with you alfred thank you very much uh, for joining us again i've got to say you weren't very successful in your previous role because there's not much democratic or equitable about the current international order Uh, survey the scene for us although i do want to take you back to hawaii and alaska perhaps you and i need to make a fact-finding tour Uh, to Hawaii Uh, survey the international scene we have no diplomacy going on at all I have never known a war where not a single person in any western country with any power or influence was not calling for ceasefires and, and negotiating tables and all of the verbiage that we normally hear, how so, why so
0: George, it's a pleasure to be in your program again. You managed to make me smile in spite of the chaos we are in the middle of. And um, part of the chaos is, of course, uh, the information war. Part of the chaos is uh, the mainstream media. Part of the chaos is the epistemological confusion. Here we have the Charter of the United Nations. That is the only rules-based international order. I'm sick and tired of hearing my President, Joe Biden, and my um, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, uh, uh, invoke ritually uh, this rules-based international order. And who is violating it every day? We are. Now, let's go to the charter for a second. Article 2, paragraph 3 to negotiate. Now, who doesn't want to negotiate? The United States, NATO forbids uh <laughs> Macron or anybody else to talk about peace. It's total madness. Who's talking about peace? The Pope. Even, even Elon Musk made a suggestion earlier this week, which was sensible, uh, to rerun the referenda uh, in um, Donbass uh, under the auspices of the United Nations. As a matter of fact, the United Nations has failed the world again and again, when has the UN uh, anticipated the problems? When has the UN worked preventively? Because when it did its uh, referenda in Timor-Leste, in Sudan, in Ethiopia, Eritrea, tens of thousands of people had already died. And uh, we could have had referenda in 1991 when Ukraine splits from the United Kingdom. All of these 30% Russians who lived in the East, probably would have preferred uh, to stay with Russia, certainly the Crimeans. You know that I was the representative of the secretary general for the elections in the Ukraine back in 1994, for the presidential elections in June, for the parliamentary elections uh, in March. And I went to the Crimea, I crisscrossed the country. Of course they're Russian, and of course they feel Russian. So again, we have here a violation of Article 2, paragraph 3 of the UN Charter by NATO not by russia russia has been trying to negotiate russia had a deal which has been uh, hosted by uh, erdogan the turkish uh president and on orders from nato Zelensky then did not sign withdrew so it's, it's a lot of bad faith here go to article two paragraph four it is the prohibition not only of the use of force, and certainly Putin's uh, aggression against uh, Ukraine uh, is an aggression, uh, but it prohibits the threat of the use of force. And the uh, progressive eastern expansion of NATO was nothing else but a threat, was nothing else for a menace to the national security of Russia. And that's something that Putin said again and again and again and he drew the red line and of course we blithely went over it so who has violated article 2 paragraph 4 russia certainly but we prepared the ground that is there are precedents of permissibility because nato which by the way nato is not a defense alliance at the latest when the warsaw pact was dismantled uh, NATO actually became an aggressive uh, organization engaged in bullying, in intimidating, in threatening—all of it prohibited by the UN Charter. All of it against the letter and spirit of the UN Charter. But I go one step further. NATO today, judging by the aggressions it committed in Yugoslavia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in. Theory, judging by the war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by NATO forces. What do you think that means? Article 9 and Article 10 of the Statute of the International Military Tribunal for Nuremberg. Those are the articles on criminal organizations. And without a doubt, NATO is a criminal organization. And I think it's absolutely insane that uh, Finland or Sweden would want to join a criminal organization. But let's go uh, back. Let's talk about terrorism. We all agree that uh, terrorism uh, must be combated. But terrorism, wherever uh, it occurs, certainly the murder of uh, Daria Dubina, the daughter of uh, the uh, Russian philosopher uh, Alexander Dugin, certainly uh, the um, uh, blowing up of uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2, certainly uh, the attack on the civilian infrastructures in Crimea, in particular the bridge, all of that qualifies as uh, terrorism. And it is not being condemned. It is being whitewashed. It is being... There are apologetics in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in the Wall Street Journal, and CNN, in the BBC. You know, I'm 75 years old. I remember when I believed in the BBC. I thought the BBC was the best thing, you know, uh, <laughs> next to the church. I just thought the BBC was truth. And uh, it took me a decades to realize that it's no longer the truth. And I write about that, by the way, in my trilogy, Building a Just World Order, which came out uh, September last year, countering mainstream narratives that came out uh, in August of this year, and the uh, biggest and best is going to be the book that I will publish next year, Deo Volente, uh, probably in April. I'm uh, more than halfway with the manuscript, and the title is The Human Rights Industry. I could have said the business of human rights, but I could have said, you know, the human rights apparatus, etc. But why industry? Because it functions like an industry. And then you have here governments and uh, intergovernmental organizations. Non governmental organizations that are actually uh, just exercising geopolitical strategies and uh, they don't care about human rights. They don't care about human dignity or the victim. I mean, they are playing a geopolitical game. And uh, the 51st section of the uh, Human Rights Council just ended here in Geneva. I participated in a couple of panels. And also this week I participated in a side event uh, to the third committee of the General Assembly in New York. Uh, It was extremely successful. I was uh, together with Professor Jeffrey Sachs from uh, Columbia University, with Professor Elena Dohan, the rapporteur on sanctions, etc. Again, there are plenty of people. We're saying the right things. One of them being, of course, uh, The Great Delusion. This is uh, my friend uh, John Mearsheimer. Uh, another one, of course, is uh, Jeff Sachs. Here, for instance, The End of Poverty. Here is uh, uh, Norman Salomon. A very useful book, War Made Easy uh the book by Steve Kenser on uh overthrow which shows by the way the overthrow of the Hawaiian
2: kingdom uh in uh well, let me, come back to the, let me come back to that, Professor. But before I do, I
1: want. Yes, sir, uh, we're going to leave it at that as we are running short of time here, or we're running out of time. And I must thank uh, Lucalo for brilliant engineering as uh, usual. Keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for powerful programming. From the team and I, till we uh, meet you again, And we bid you, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.